Welcome to 66 Lessons for Life, the weekly radio program recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. Taught by our teacher, John Garepa, an attorney who guides us in the way of wisdom with a biblical worldview. You're invited to join us for the study. All right, we are in Joshua chapter 3 in the outline that we've been using. And you know, as we've studied this, uh, God has brought the, the people of Israel out of Egypt. They've wandered for 40 years. Now they're at the Jordan River, and they are about finally to cross over into the promised land. And they've sanctified themselves. They've prayed. They've cleaned up their act and to whatever extent that they could in order to honor God. And now they've, they're beginning to cross the Jordan River. And as they do that, God has, has told them that the priests, the Levites, will carry the Ark of the Covenant into the water first. And the Jordan River normally is only about 50 or 60 feet wide. But at flood stage, it's about a mile wide. And God has indicated that they are to cross the Jordan River at flood stage. How about that? We'll talk about that later, what that means when God expects us to do things that seem insurmountable. And so here they are crossing the Jordan River as the Ark of the Covenant goes first, 3,000 feet ahead, 3,000 feet ahead of 3 million Jews. And as it goes 3,000 feet ahead, the, the priests carry it into the water, and as the priests step into the water with the Ark, the river recedes. Uh, and the water backs up. And as a result, as they move forward into the middle of the riverbed, the river dries up completely. And three million Jews are about to be able to cross over. What an extraordinary event. One of the great miracles uh, in the history of the Jewish people is God exhibits his power. And so we see this. We see that here we have the uh, River Jordan at flood stage, uh, that will be now crossed by several million Jews. Walking in faith, based on what God has told them to do. Walking in faith behind the Ark of the Covenant. Now, one of the things that I thought I would do today, before I get deeper into the lesson, is I thought I would go and give you some background on the Ark of the Covenant. Because I think it's important that you understand what the Ark of the Covenant is. Several people asked me about that last week, so I thought we ought to talk about that. Now, when God called the Jewish people out of Egypt, uh, within a short period of time, he gave them the Ten Commandments, and shortly thereafter, he ordered Moses to create the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant would be that box in which God would prevail over the box and Moses would go in to speak to God. Uh, and the pillar of cloud effectively would be over this. The Ark of the Covenant was to be put in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. The tabernacle in the beginning was a tent. A tent. And it would have a section set off for the Holy of Holies. And the Ark of the Covenant would be within that. Now many of you have seen popular movies like the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, and you know that that's been popularized. And in popular culture, the Ark of the Covenant has disappeared. It hasn't been seen since uh, David was king, or Solomon was king, after the Jews were effectively transported into Babylon. The Ark has disappeared. Many theologians and historians believe that the Ark has been hidden uh, in some, some place to protect it 
Some even believe that it's been hidden under the Temple Mount of all things. Can you imagine that it's, that it's hidden? But whether it's hidden, whether it's been destroyed or not, it had an important uh, historical and symbolic place for the people of Israel. It was effectively the place where God was located, where God would be an exhibit, where they would go in once a year to atone for their sins. And within the Ark of the Covenant, at various times, it always contained the Ten Commandments. Thereafter, at some point, they put a jar of manna in. They also put the staff of Aaron, which you know the staff of Aaron at one point actually budded. It's an amazing story. Can you imagine God determining, uh, being disgusted with how the Jews were divisive amongst themselves? So he said he wanted a staff from each of the 12 tribes to come and be put into the tabernacle, placed before the ark, uh, and the one that would, would be shown to be the most powerful would be the leader of Israel as a Levite. And Aaron's staff, Aaron's staff, according to the Bible, not only budded and blossomed, but it produced almonds. Is that good enough for you? <laughs> Got any questions? It seems pretty clear to me. Right? It seems pretty clear to me. It's a dry stick of wood. It's like taking a two-by-four out of a lumber yard. And the next thing you know, you have a tree. So you understand God exhibiting the power, the power and might, mighty presence of his sovereignty. Well, it's here in, in the ark. And so the ark was, if you, if you want to read this, we're not going to read it now, but you'll see the ark being established in Exodus chapter 25. And God gives specific instructions as to how the ark is to be created. It's not like God says to Moses, go out and just make a box. Just make a box, and that'll be good enough. No, it's not, not good enough. God uh, ordered exactly what the dimensions would be. It would be about four and a half feet long. It would be about two and a half feet high. It would be about two feet wide. And on it, it would have a mercy seat. It would be constructed of acacia wood, a certain kind of wood. And then the wood would be overlaid with gold. Uh, God ordered and, and, and indicated exactly how all this would take place. And on each side of the mercy seat, and the mercy seat would be where the blood sacrifices would take place, right there on that seat of the ark. The blood sacrifices would take place, and on each end of the ark would be cherubim. And God ordained exactly how those cherubim would be, the angels, the covering angels, indicating that God is covered by his angels, that their wings are there. And, and it's, a, it's, it's so interesting when you see this, it was then carried on two poles, two poles covered in gold. And wherever the Jews traveled in the wilderness for 40 years, the Ark of the Covenant would go first. It would go first. And because that's, that was the indication that God is with us. And so we see this. And it's important for you to understand that there are multiple symbols of this Ark that relate to Jesus Christ. And that's what this is all about, is God is preordaining to the Jewish people that there will come a time uh, when there is a Savior. Uh, and as I studied this, uh, it was interesting for me to, to see that the acacia wood symbolized our Lord's humanity, the acacia. The gold overlay den denoted his deity, the deity of God. The Ten Commandments themselves that were within the uh, ark pictured Jesus with the law of God in his heart, 
and lifting it up in perfect obedience to God the Father. At one point, they put manna, in a, a jar of manna in the ark, and that symbolized the fact that Jesus was the bread of life. Uh, and the mercy seat, the place where all the sacrifices were, the place above which God himself would be uh, his presence, that pointed to the fact that the Messiah was going to come and would be representative of the fact that Jesus would die on the cross. Jesus would be that once and always perfect sacrifice, just like those sacrifices had taken place on the mercy seat. And you see this going on and how the Jewish people had been led by the ark. Now, it's an amazing story uh, as you study what happened with the ark. And as the Jewish people uh, became more formalized in their practices... Uh, at some point in time, Israel really began to devolve uh, and to become more secularized. And at some point in time, they determined during the period of the judges that they would, have, they would take the ark and bring the ark into battle. Now, the ark was never intended to go into battle. You understand? The ark was meant to stay in the Holy of Holies. All right? And we're going we're gonna to see that or travel with the Jewish people. But here, they decided that they would take the, the ark and bring it into battle against the Philistines. Well, guess what happened? All right? The ark was taken over by the Philistines. And for about a year, the Philistines put it in their temple, their pagan temple. Well, when you read scripture and you find out what happens, is all kinds of incredible things happen there, starting with the statues falling over. You like that? Their heads being knocked off. All right? Then the people breaking out in tumors. Breaking out in tumors. All right? And so then they decided, we got to get rid of this. And they, they, they put the ark and they sent it out. Uh, they had some animals carry it out and try to get it away. And then when it went to that village, those people got sick. In other words, you don't mess around with the sovereignty of God. Amen. You understand? You don't mess around with the sovereignty of God. God is holy. And God had laid out who, who he was and how he was to be worshipped. Uh, and so you see this in every way. And so it's, it's, you have to understand how critical it was for the Ark of the Covenant to be carried across the Jordan River as the, as the river opens up. And so what, what an incredible example to see that. Um, and so as I looked at this passage... I want to finish reading the rest of, of uh, chapter 3. We went, up to chap we went up to verse 14. And so, if you follow along from verse 14, Joshua chapter 3. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. We're three million people now. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan River while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Amen. How do you like that picture? 
completed the crossing on dry ground in every way. And so you see exactly what happens when we honor God, when we do what God tells us to do. We sanctify ourselves uh, and as God told us to do. And so there are incredible uh, messages here for us. And I wanted to focus on that today to give you some application in your life today about you crossing the Jordan River. Now you're going to say to me, come on, John. Jordan, how am I crossing the Jordan River today? You're crossing the Jordan River a thousand times this year. There are going to be so many issues in your life that look to be insurmountable, that look to be incalculable, that look to be so beyond your ability to contend with them. It is your Jordan River, just like the Jewish people got to that river and couldn't cross it, didn't know what to do until God intervened. And so I want to give you this. And, and, and let you think about it. The first thing we see is that it's a challenge. The Jewish people were given a challenge. God brought them to the river at flood stage. Now, let me ask you something. God's leading them through the wilderness for 40 years. Don't you think that God had the ability to lead them during a dry period? Why don't we, you know what, guys? Uh, maybe, maybe it's not good that I get you there when it's a mile wide. Maybe I can get you there when it's 50 feet wide. Now, what would happen if God did that and you crossed the Jordan River? What would you say? Oh, I crossed the Jordan River. I took care of that. Look at me. I didn't need God. I could do it on my own. And that's one of the first things that you recognize when you live a Christian life. God is going to put things in your life to prove to you that you can't do it on your own unless you rely on God. Can I get an amen? amen. This is a critical part of what we have to study today. This is what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean God rolls out the red carpet. It doesn't mean that there are flowers put in your path, that you just skate home to heaven. It doesn't mean that. God wants your life to be a poster board to the world. And the way he does it is by putting you through trials, through suffering, through issues in your life that, is, that are transforming to you because he's going to use those things to prove to the world that he can make something out of you that you never thought he could do. And that's what God does. And so as you see this lesson, as you see it, what does it mean? The first thing that I notice when I read this um, is that in chapter 3, the, the mention of the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned seven times in chapter 3. I counted it up. Seven times the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned. Why? Because... Unless God is in your life, unless he is front and center, whatever you're doing is of no avail. All right? You're just wasting your time unless God is in your life. Unless you're putting God first. Unless you've determined that the Ark of the Covenant, God himself, is going to be in a prime position in your life, just as it was there seven times in Joshua chapter 3. The Ark of the Covenant is there. And so what we have to understand is that God will show you what he intends to do with you in your life. He expects us to watch him and to listen to him and to honor him. And so I want to I want to direct that. Secondly, the next lesson that I learned from reading this is that God expects us to follow him. And when you read this third chapter, it says when they saw the ark of the covenant move, they were to leave your place and go after it. That's the quote. Leave your place and follow it. Now think about that in your own life. God is saying that to you right now. 
I know you're having hard times. I know you're being challenged. I know you're going through trials. I know you've got the Jordan River there. But I want you to know that if you follow me, if you get up and follow me and stay with me, I will be with you. They were to pursue God. Make note of that word. They were to pursue God. Not as an offhanded thought. Not as just some accident. Not just on Sunday morning for an hour. But rather, they were to pursue God. Every moment of their lives. Every day of the week. 365 days a year pursuing God. Meaning, God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? What doors do you want to open for me, Lord? Let me understand your will. And so you see this. And again, and again... The lesson for the believer uh, is that we need to know what God is doing. We need to understand the times. And, And as we do this, what we see here is that God wants us to leave one place, wherever we think we're encamped, and go after him. So just because you've been someplace and you're encamped in a spot and thinks that's a good spot, God may say to you, I don't want you in that spot. I want you to get up. I want you to move. I want you to go here. I want you to do this. And I think we need to, we need to open ourselves up to God's direction in our life. What, is, what does God want from us as we face these, these uh, difficult situations? The next lesson that I learned from this is the, the, uh, the position that God expects us to honor him. Uh, and look at this. The Israelites are told to stay at least three thousand feet behind the ark why three thousand feet why because god wanted the ark to be out far enough ahead of the multitude so that they could have a perspective of what god was doing they could see the power of god ahead of them and in order to do that they needed to honor god to understand that there is a sovereignty and a righteousness and a holiness of god that we need to understand that too many of us have a very cavalier attitude about God. Just very cavalierly we speak about God instead of understanding here that God expects us to honor him. And let me tell you something about the Ark of the Covenant. There were very strict regulations about that. Nobody was to touch the Ark of the Covenant. Nobody. And one of the famous stories is when the Jews finally took the Ark, took it back from the Philistines and took it back as they were carrying the Ark back. The Ark started to tip and one of the men tried to keep the ark from falling and put his hands up to keep it from falling over and he was struck dead. Struck dead. Now that seems like a bit harsh. You understand? In my humanity, I'm thinking, oh God, come on, man. God, he just wanted to keep it from tipping over. But you understand you're not following God's orders. If God tells you to go left, you don't go right. If God says go right, you don't go down the middle. That's the point. Understanding the sovereignty and holiness of God. That's why it's important. Just as we understand grace, that we also understand the law. And we have the grace of Jesus Christ to keep us us within the law. And to keep us straight, to understand how God expects us to live. And so, we can't just treat God as one of our buds. You know? Just one of our buds. God is not just one of your buds. And so when you approach him, when you honor him, when you pray to him, 
you understand that he is the creator of the universe. Uh, he is the creator of the universe. He controls every aspect of your life. And as you do that and you honor him, uh, the spirit of God uh, that you have inside you, that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, that spirit, that essence of God will control your life. And, and as I've said before, so many of us have spent our lifetime turning down the pilot light of the spirit. I don't want it too high. I don't want to look like a flake. By going to the country club, nobody will sit with me. Nobody will hang around with me. I'm afraid I'm going to say some dumb things and people would think I'm just a flake. Let me tell you something, folks. I used to think that way. When I was younger, honestly, really. I don't, I don't want you to think that I'm some holy, pious guy up here. I've walked just where you guys are, okay? And I felt that same way. I didn't want to be too far out there. I didn't want to be too far out there because I thought people would say that about me. You know what I've come to realize? I can't turn it up high enough. All right. Because here's the thing. When you are on fire for God, when you've turned on the spirit of God in your life, people are going to be attracted to you, the likes of which you will not know. It's a miracle why that happens. People are going to come out of the woodwork and they're going to ask you for advice. They're going to look at how you're living your life because you have turned your life over to God. It's not you. It's not your intellect. It's not your winsome personality. It's because the Holy Spirit is alive inside of you. I want you to understand that. And so that's one of the lessons that I really want to drill home to you about this. That as we pray and we see these examples in the Old Testament, and I try to weave the New Testament into it to explain it to you, that you get an abiding concern and commitment in your life that, God, I want to get closer to you. Lord, I can't live this life. I can't walk around here. I can't work. I can't go to doctor's offices anymore not knowing what I'm going to face. I need you alive in my life so that I can, I can, I can confront these issues. And as my family is suffering, I need, the, I need your abiding strength in my life. And you see that here. And so next, what, what lesson do I learn as they cross the Jordan River? It involved a command. It was a command. The people were told to sanctify yourselves. Something mighty is going to happen. Sanctify yourselves. What does that mean? It means that God wants you to be prepared to be used by him. And here's the thing. If you're a filthy vessel, if you're someone that has not sanctified yourself, if you have not submitted to God, then God is not going to find a way to use you. So many of you have spoke to me about the fact that you've asked God to use you in ministry, and some of you have waited a long time uh, and still have not found a place that you think that God has, wants you to do. I would say this. One of the steps that you need to do is this. Are you sanctified before God? Is there some issue in your life that you have not cleaned up? Don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. You talk to him. You ask him. You ask him for grace. You have some problem, some proclivity, some obsession. Everybody has something in their life. You know what I'm talking about. That closet, yes, God, I want you in my life, just not in that particular closet. That's my closet. I'm handling that. I'm taking care. I've got it under control. And yet God says, I want to be in every room in your house. I don't care about your closet. You don't have a closet. It's my closet. 
And so when we finally understand this, that there's no part of our life that is not within his ambit and control, that he, that he expects us to sanctify and, clear and clean up, then you will understand that you are getting ready to be used. He's getting ready to use you and to take your life. But you first have to clean it up. And so here they were, three million people. Something big is going to happen. God is going to magnify himself tomorrow. But you must sanctify yourself today. And they did. They honored God. They ceremoniously cleaned themselves up and, and removed those things that needed to be removed from their lives. Uh, and so this is an important thing for us to, to understand. Turn, if you would, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. And Hebrews is a fascinating book because we don't know who wrote Hebrews. But it was written for a Jewish audience. All right? So Hebrews is written to Jews who are becoming Christians or to Jews who are considering becoming Christians, uh, or to Jews who were Christians and walked away. And it's a very interesting uh, book. So look at Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 6. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Let's stop right there. That's the love of God. He cares about you. He wants to make you something special. And so in order to do it, it was like your own father. He disciplined you. You remember your father would say to you before he whacked you, before, before the authorities would get called today. We all grew up in a period in which there were no authorities. At least I didn't think there were any authorities. Seemed like I was getting whacked every other week. All right. And let me tell you, when my father hit, it hurt. My father was a very powerful guy, and he would say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I said, there's no way it hurts you more than it hurts me. There's no way. I mean, really, you know that. You grew up in that period of time. There's not a guy here that wasn't hit on a regular basis, you know? Of course, now, ooh, no, no, we don't do that. That's improper, politically incorrect, you know. You know, we take timeouts. Take a timeout. Yeah, I had a timeout. I had a shot to my head. That was a timeout. And so here, here it is. Here it is. Right here in Scripture that God loves us. He is disciplining those because he loves us. And so he is creating a disciplined life because he's doing something special. Verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. There it is. Endure hardship as discipline. God, loving you as his son, is using discipline in your life. Now, this is a hard thing to preach to people, okay? It's a hard thing to preach because I know what you'd like to think. I'm a Christian. I'm just going to just sail right in. All the things, all the rain that falls on the rest of the world is not falling on me. No, man, that's not true. That's not how God has created us. God has created us to suffer many of the things that people in the world are suffering, but they suffered by accident. You're suffering because God is in your life, and he's going to use those things to create you and to strengthen you and to make you a poster child for the world. So understand this. I want you to understand that this is going on at the Jordan River, and you now, each of you, are facing your own Jordan River. I don't care if it's in your marriage or if it's in your business or if it's in, its, in your health. The fact for us is that the longer we live, the more Jordan Rivers we're going to have to cross. 
So we got to get this straight once and for all. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Let me stop at that point. Imagine that. If you're just sailing through life, and you're not coming across hardship, then you've got a question. Lord, am I where you want me to be? Are you doing something to me? Or am, I, or am I outside your will? Because if I'm in your will, I'm going to face some hard times. I want you to say, understand that. If you're in God's will, you're going to face some hard times. There are going to be Jordan rivers that you're going to have to face. And God wants you to know that. Verse 9. Moreover, we, moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more... Should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Well, what a great quote that is, isn't it? I mean, you think about it with your own father. Did you hate your father because he disciplined you? You didn't. You loved your father. Even though you didn't understand why you were getting whacked sometimes. Okay? You didn't really understand it. But you know what? You loved your father. I can think of my, in my own life that, that uh, at, early on my father was working in a foundry while he was even preaching part-time, and he would come home from work from a foundry. Can you imagine working in a foundry, in a, in a brass foundry, filled with brass and dust, uh, and, you know, and, and coming in and getting in the house about 4.15, 4.30, and, and my, I had been giving my mother a hard time, and my mother would say to me, when your father gets home. <laughs> When your father gets home. So I knew, I knew that even at the age of 9, 10, 11, 12, that I had a short period of time to make my case with my father. Basically, from the time the car pulled up to the curb to he walked into the house, it was about 20 seconds. So within 20 seconds, I had to get out the defense of my life that my mother was about to derail. And so as my father gets out of the car, and this is typical, I would say, Mom, Dad, look, you're going to hear a bunch of lies from Mommy. They're all lies. Don't go there. I didn't do anything that she's saying. It's a bunch of exaggeration. Don't believe it. Now, of course, my father would go in, and my mother would go, you have no idea what he did. Whack, whack, whack. You know, and yet I love my father. And you know what I've learned? Here's what I learned about those days, really. I think the, one of the reasons why I became a successful lawyer a bit with the ability to put an argument together in 20 seconds were those 20 seconds. See, those 20 seconds, I had to speak in sound bites. Dad, there's a bunch of lies you're going to hear. And yet, I loved my father. And I know every one of you could give a similar testimony. You loved your father, all right, even as he disciplined you. And that's what God is like. You understand? That's what God is like. You see this picture of God, and you see this, and it's incredible. And so, moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Amen. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. There it is, folks. Your Jordan River, your time of difficulty, 
God is telling you, be sanctified, clean up your life, and now be disciplined. I'm going to do something mighty with you. I'm going to ask you to step out in faith. And so you see this. As he does this, you see how God works. You see how this is. And then, and then what else do I see from this passage? I see that basically when God asks us to move out, it involves a commitment on our part. Uh, you want to get across the Jordan River? You have to be committed to follow me in faith even when you cannot fully understand it. There it is. You have to be committed. You have to understand that God is saying to you to step out in faith. You won't understand everything that's going through your life. You won't understand it. And what happens? We're consumed with worry and doubt. Is there a person here that can say that worry and doubt doesn't somehow get into your life? You know, I I was doing a lesson on that yesterday, talking about Jesus raising Lazarus and Mary and Martha coming out to Jesus. And one of the things that we learned from there is Mary, Martha goes out to Jesus as Jesus is coming to the tomb and basically uh, berating Jesus. Lord, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. He wouldn't have died. He, in other words, you were too busy preaching to be here and he died. He's dead. And later on, Jesus says, roll away the stone. No, don't go doing that. He's been dead for four days. His body will stink. You see how our faith is? Worry and doubt. Faith, really, not fully committed to God. And so God is saying to us today, not only am I going to work in your life, not only am I going to discipline you and raise you up, not only am I going to prepare you for your own Jordan Rivers, but I want you to come to terms with the issue of worry and doubt. Worry and doubt are their own Jordan River. Turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. Jesus, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What a great statement. Don't worry about tomorrow. What if, what if, what if, what if? I can't even get out of bed sometimes if I consider the what ifs. You all know this. You don't talk about it because you're tough guys. I know you do. You know, you don't want to talk about these things. We kind of keep it into ourselves. We don't let people know. We don't let our spouses know. Let our children or our family know. But we're worried. What about my resources, my assets, the government, the country, the Supreme Court? Oh, I'm just going to stay under the blankets. That's it. I'm just going to stay under the blankets. I'm not going to stick my head out because you know what? What about tomorrow? Jesus is saying to you, you're with me. Don't worry about tomorrow. I've got your tomorrow covered. All right? I want you to understand that. I've got your tomorrow covered. So that's an important thing for us to understand. Uh, Look also while we're here in Matthew 6. Look at verses 25 to 33. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? That's a good point, right? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all of his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Amen? Amen. There it is. There's your Jordan Rivers. There it is. Wrapped up. In those sentences, in so many ways, you're Jordans. What, what's going to happen with my life? What about my assets? Will I have enough money? What's happening with the government? What about the health issue? What's my health going to be? Will I have enough health insurance? Where am I going? I can't get out of bed. I'm going to stay in bed. I can't take it. And that's what happens. That's how Satan ruins your life. And that's how some of us have never reached out and done anything for the kingdom of God because we're so consumed and obsessed with these material issues that we don't fully put ourselves with God. Now, listen to me. I don't want you to think here that I'm not affected by these things. Yes, I am. All right. I worry. But then I say, God, please take this away from me. Lord, in faith, God, give me your grace. Take this away. And God does. He honors that prayer. And that's what I want you to know today. Yes, when you face your Jordan River. Yes, when you get your hard times. You know, they're going to come into your life, but you then have to say, Lord, I'm, and I want to be in your will. I want you to cover my life, Father. I don't have enough faith. Lord, strengthen my faith. That's a prayer to ask God to give you. Lord, strengthen my faith. He'll honor that. He'll honor that. Strengthen my faith. Lord, help me in my commitments. Help me to be the kind of man you want me to be, to be the kind of Christian that you want me to be. And you see this. And so God has promised us that he will be with us in every step of the way. Just as he took the Jewish people after they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness because they were not committed to God, because they would not honor God, because they would not step out when he told them to do. He, he disciplined them for 40 years. Now they come to the Jordan River. Now the predicate has been set. Now they know they need to be right with God. They've sanctified themselves. They've understood God is holy. They're honoring God. They're committing God. And then I want you to turn also to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said never will I leave you never will I forsake you you understand that don't be committed to the material aspects of your life don't be wrapped up into the material aspects of your life don't make those material things an icon an idol a god in itself even though you won't admit it because that's how you get your river Jordans these become other issues in your life, but recognize that God will give you what God wants you to have. God will take care of your needs. He'll give you what you need. Not necessarily what you want, but what you need. This is the nature of our walk. This is how God expects us to live. Uh, and so God, God is telling us 
that he expects us to trust him and to walk with him in that trust. And so this is an important aspect of the Christian life. And so you see this here. You see it here as the Jews are crossing the Jordan River. And now as they're crossing the Jordan River, turn back to Joshua chapter 4. As we see them now in the next step of crossing, and I want to read some of these verses in chapter 4. Verse 1, when the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priest stood, and to carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. How do you like that? So Joshua called together the 12 men who had who he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you in the future when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Now, I want to tell you what that means to you today. Where are the stones from the middle of the Jordan River? They're in your heart. They're in your heart. They are your life. When you are, as God has said here, to be an example to your family, to tell them about the protection of God, to tell them about the blessings of God, you, my friends, are one of those stones. God is saying to us that we are to be memorials to our own families. You want, to, you want your family to be within God? You want your family to understand how God has worked in your life? Then your life becomes a stone. And a memorial is an important thing. It was so important here that God told them to go back into the river, go back into the river, and each one of the tribes take one of these large riverbed stones and bring it out and plant it on the, on the bed of the river, on, on the dry ground, so that forevermore, forevermore, the Jewish people would remember what God did. And you think about what God has done in your life. There's not a person in this group that has not had God bless their lives, that has not been in God, has not been in their life in every possible way. I don't care about the hard times that you may have gone through. God has been with you. You know that he's been with you. You can get up and testify about the blessings and the care and the love, how he's delivered you in every possible way. You are a memorial stone. That's what God has done. And so God expects us to do that. Uh, and as we read this, we see the crossing. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones and they did that. Now, now continuing on in verse 10. Now the priests who carried the ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed the, the ark of the Lord, and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. Uh, and, and what also uh, God had told jo uh, uh, Joshua, he told them to put some stones as a memorial in the middle of the river. How do you like that? I want you also to put some stones as a memorial in the middle of the river, that will be covered up. And what does that mean? It means this. It means that God has done certain things that only you know about, that's in your heart, 
that God wants you to remember forever in your heart between you and God about who he is and what he's done. Those stones aren't necessarily for the world. Those stones are meant for you. The ones on the riverbank are for the world. But there's other memorial stones that he's done, that he's touched, that he's held you, that he's cared about you, that he's done something in a very special way. And you have to understand that that's how God is. And that's what he's done. And so you see that. And so uh, the lesson here for believers is that crossing the Jordan represents passing from one level of Christian life to another. It is a picture of entering into spiritual warfare to claim what God has promised. How do you like that? That's exactly what it is. On this side, you're in the wilderness. On this side, you've wandered for 40 years. Now you're going to cross over, and from now on, you're going to be in the promised land, a land filled with milk and honey, a place where you will be blessed, a place where your enemies will fall down before you. You're going from one level of spiritual life to another. And the only way you can do that is when you honor God and are committed to God and serve God and honor him and follow him in every aspect of your life and clean up the recesses of your life, the dark closets that only you know about. Because in order for him to use you and to be committed to you and you to be committed to him, you have to fully serve him in every possible way in order to be sanctified, in order to walk out behind the Ark of the Covenant, behind God himself, as he opens the way of this world to you. And your life, your life will be a memorial stone to this world and to your family. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for the lessons that you've given us today, Lord, how we see the power of your hand on the Jewish people and what you did for them as you took them from one level of life to another as we see the example of spiritual warfare. Lord, help us, Father, to understand these issues in our life, to be recommitted to you, Lord, in every way, and to put our own Jordan rivers under control. Lord, today, help us to let these problems be minimized as we recommit our faith to you in every possible way. Bless these people, Lord. Bless our men. Protect them this week and bring them back safely to continue the study of your word next week. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to 66 Lessons for Life, the men's Bible study taught by John Garippa and recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding so that you, the man of God, would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For more information about the program or attending the Naples Men's Bible Study at the Naples Conference Center, go to our website at 66lessonsforlife.com.